Hello and welcome to uh, <laughs> start again. Start again. Uh, <laughs> stop and start again. I've, 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 I forgot the name. I forgot the name of our own podcast. <laughs> I literally. All right. Okay, I'll start again. Are you going to name another podcast instead? I just thought, what are we called? I've got, I've got no fucking idea what this thing is called. Uh, right. Okay, I'll start again. Hello, and welcome to Football Unfocused, the podcast in which uh, me, Mark, and my uh, friend of many years, Matthew, um, wrote sort of discuss football in a roundabout way, a rambly, non-specific, and often probably factually inaccurate way. Um, Matthew. How are things? Um, yes, I'm good. F- good. Um, no, you've like... done it again. You've done it. Oh again. shit! Shit! Sorry, Mark. Mark, sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> it's not for effect. I promise. Um, mm. Yeah. No. But uh, li- you know, I. <laughs> I mean, if if it's not trying to remember the podcast, it's trying to remember your first name. That's my name. Yeah. On this. It's all right. You've only known me for twenty-eight years. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. Um, what 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 did you want to talk? What did oh what what are we talking about today? Well, actually, I know what we're talking about today, but for the yeah, Matthew, for... remind uh, if anyone ever listens to this, what are we talking about today? So today we're talking about um, the key moments that have shaped modern football. So the the first one I sort of looked at was the um, the Hazel disaster in eighty five. Oh my and... lord. I know, I'm sorry, but I guess yeah. the, the reason it sh- I guess the reason I thought that shaped modern football is because you know, well, okay, just from a just from a narrow English perspective, that the start of clamping down on who hooliganism um in, in English football. And um but but from a wider point of view, I mean it was, you know, the way it changed the stadiums, you know, it was hugely um important for you know putting all the seats in taking out the terraces and that kind of thing so so that's why i thought that was a key moment that changed modern football um yeah. i don't know if that's something you wanted to talk about but i can go on to something else i mean not not in huge amounts of detail because i think that Heisel and Hillsborough, you know, obviously happened within four years of each other. Very, very different uh, situations and and sort of narratives. And you know, there's 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 a lot of. I think with with Heisel, there's there's still a lot of like hurt and controversy, and uh, you know, understandably. But essentially, you're right in that, that. I would describe that as the the sort of well, pinnacles are definitely the wrong word. The, the sort of low point of a long period of time where you got to understand with football, um, you know, that, that there's a certain element to the hooligan, the hooligan culture over a long period of time where it was, you know, clearly being driven by a sort of groundswell of, of anger and, you know, all sorts of social issues that were spilling over into football. It wasn't football causing it. It was, you know, people angry at stuff that going on in their lives, be it, unemployment, changes in society, the government, whatever. Um, and um, the high salt for me, and clearly, uh, you know, I've got, I've got skin in the game here um, to an extent, even though, you know, I was too young to have been there. Um, I don't think it can go down as just outright 
football, an example of outright football hooliganism. But what it does go down as is the the point after which certainly English football was forced to uh, take a look at itself and change forever. But within that, you know, the, 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 you know, some people will say, learned sort of psychologists will say that people are people are often they'll behave in a way in which you know they're surround the, the way in which they're treated and football fans for a long period of time going way back before hooliganism were treated almost like cattle the way in which they were treated on the, the you know the, the the build up the lead to the stadium within the stadium kept in sort of cages in horrendous conditions barely functioning sort of toilet facilities you know really were treated like animals with little regard to their to their safety and during the uh seven late 70s and through the early to mid 1980s there had been so many issues with football grounds and foot you got to remember it's difficult to to imagine now football was unfashionable there was you know the core of the football fan was still loved the game and still went to stadiums but you look at attendances around that time you see footage from around that time sort of half empty terraces and i think that's to do with you know it wasn't an attractive product that people were um wanting to engage with people were scared all that sort of stuff and you know just wanted to remove themselves from that culture plus there was a a, a genuinely targeted campaign from the the british government at that time to almost like a managed decline of uh of football it was part of their wider i think they saw it as part of their wider um you know aim of you could call it a name of like in, in managed industrial decline of some of the big sort of northern cities in particular and prepared and it, it is and football was this kind of quite dangerous working class uh um cauldron of of you know hot, a hotbed of pro- trouble but also you know organization and sort of social movement and you get because of kind of a culture of all of that and over a long period of time and you know involving there's probably there are not many clubs that that didn't have some involvement at some stage with an incident of uh, hooliganism or trouble. Um, but I, you know, by the time it got to Heysel, you're in a position where you're playing the biggest game in the European football calendar, the European Cup slash Champions League final, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it, the, the stadium's a crumbling wreck. I mean, that stadium was not fit to... Um, host that number of people you know there's it was a, a brick structure that was uh, in need of uh, a drastic modernization and was literally crumbling bits of brick were falling apart now there was a standoff between two sets of rival supporters juventus and liverpool whereby the the the, the, the there, there was no proper segregation between the two sets of fans and think you know a bit of a standoff started and the two sets of fans are sort of going at each other. And then when, on one occasion, when the Liverpool, some Liverpool supporters rushed at the Juve end, the, it caused a, a wall, the crumbling wall, to collapse and uh, Juventus supporters to tragically lose their lives. And it's an absolute, you know, and the fact that they then, after all of that, with dead people being carried away from the stadium and badly injured people, they then thought that, you know, felt it was important to actually play the match. They played the match. They went on the pitch and played the match with like a ring of police around it. And, you know, it's, they, there's a, there's this theory about Michel Platini, who's, that was like the pinnacle of his career. He was one of world football's um, sort of elite players at that time. And that was his, after his big move to Juventus, 
that's that was Juve's first ever European Cup win, and he scored the winner in a penalty. They were going to finish one nil to Ju- Juventus, and the fact that that is so undermined and no one, I don't think many people have great, you know, fond even the, the winners have fond memories of that day. They always say that that's why he, when he became president of UEFA, had a dim view of English football and 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 always appeared to be trying to bring in you know changes that would diminish the strength of in, of english clubs um but what that did you know that that caused a, a you know a ban i think it was six five years for all english clubs from european competition and six for uh liverpool because they were you know obviously involved uh specifically with that incident and what that did is that Gave them a period of time where they had to. It co- well, it also costs two or three really fantastic uh, teams. Uh, it cost them the ability to test themselves on the European stage. You know, they were just confined to domestic football, um, and it probably contributed to the rise in strength of Italian uh, club football at that time in the late eighties. You know, really massive um, um, increase in the strength and influence of Italian football. And it basically, if you were a world star, you went and played in Italy in the great Milan team, but not just Milan, Napoli with Maradona and um, Inter and, and uh, Juve. Um, and during that time, English football really, you know, was I mean, was still dealing with really big problems. And one of the, you know, obviously the most prominent of which in 1989, the, the Hillsborough disaster, a, a problem caused for, you know, completely different reasons, nothing at all to do with hooliganism. That that was the ultimate example of, you know, treating, essentially, you know, neglect treating people with disdain, having no um, hot care for, so, you know, uh, the health and the safety of, of spectators, treating people like cattle, having them in cages, herding them, not being able to manage um, um, any sort of, you know, overcrowding in a safe um, and dignified way for people, and that led to a massive reform, the Taylor Report, and the introduction of all-seater stadiums. So that period of time, from the mid to late 80s, but don't forget there was also the Bradford uh, fire during that time, in which uh, you know the, in the Bradford City Stadium, the, the again down to such neglect in terms of a, a, de- a decaying old stand, wooden floored stand with you know, years upon years of, of rubble building up underneath the, the floor and people are turning up every week and watching football, standing on essentially a bonfire without even knowing it. And I'm pretty certain, uh, to you know, check the facts, I'm clear, you don't want to get this thing wrong. I'm pretty certain it was essentially caused by a fag butt. You know, just it happened to be the, the, that fag butt that hit at that particular moment then just ignited. And of course, you know, it's sitting on a pile of highly flammable material that had been building up over a long period of time and a wooden stand so people are in a like you know they're, they're, they're trapped in a like like a almost like a, a lit coffin um that that is unimaginable the idea of something like that happening now and uh, um in in the way that modern stadiums are are built and managed and the facilities and stuff that goes with them but you know i think at the time it probably didn't even shock uh, that many people so that's a period of time that is a you know it's not it's certainly not uh uh english football's kind of proud proudest era but it's one of the most influential in that, that the the um 
incidents over that sort of four or five year period ha- has uh, played a huge part in shaping um, what we now see as the mo- modern football. Mm. Um, so yeah, so so going on to <clears throat> something else, I was I was. Um, it's not really a moment, but how technology now has has possibly changed our modern football, and and in mm. some ways, I'm more almost from the punditry point of view. But but there is obviously loads of um, data and information that the that the clubs use um, uh, to 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 organise the teams, to to manage the players, to ensure they're healthy and fit, and all those kind of things. Um, how decisions are made within the game, um, obviously now very much based around technology, you know, more cameras, um, uh, Hawkeye and all those kinds of things. Um, and obviously there was that film, I mean, that, that was to do with baseball, but like Moneyball. So the idea of, you know, um, base setting up a team around uh, statistics, um, even if they don't necessarily have the same cashiers possibly somebody else but but i guess i i would probably also contrast that with you know examples where people have spent big so i'm thinking recently and obviously again don't don't want to timestamp these uh these uh, episodes but but frank lampard spent 200 million uh last summer and he didn't seem to get much for his well the, that's the argument that he didn't really seem to get much out of that money so so I guess there is a slight contradiction there that people are using, obviously, technology and statistics, but, but big money is still being spent possibly in ways that aren't, you know... Um, well, don't forget, don't forget that, that not every club implements the same system. That's what makes uh, one of the things that makes um, football so fascinating and that every club's got their own approach. But what is certainly true from the points you've raised, probably in a wider context of changes shaping modern football is the extent to which uh, you know data and analytics and statistics on all every single area not just you know the way in which the game is played and phases of play positional ball retention percentage of you know shots and sprints and areas of the pitch zonal analysis heart rate it's everything like that but it but it's it's also then everything to do with like their their nutrition and you know their whether they're in what zone they're in and how likely that is to make them get injured and their um sort of you know their their sort of biological history in terms of all injuries and areas of weakness everything like that but in terms of transfers you know there's there's lots of different approaches and that kind of moneyball um um that sort of billy bean moneyball approach um has been quite sort of you know trendy a bit of a trendy buzzword in the last sort of 15 odd years um and you know my own club liverpool the owners uh, um who also owned a, the fenway sports group who also owned the boston red sox um are big into that you know that that guy billy bean that i'm pretty sure they they took him from Oh, I will get this wrong, but I don't care because it's American football. Um, but what's the, what's the name of the, the, the name? Whatever club um, he was overachieving in and won them the Super Bowl or whatever, and they brought him to the Red Sox. And I think it was a, it's not the Green Bay Packers. It's uh, oh, it's someone someone else. But anyway, um, 
but I don't, I don't care. Uh, and but but, the, but brought him brought him to the Red Sox, and the Red Sox hadn't won the Super Bowl in about 120 years or something like that. And the change is that using that analytical approach to make decisions proved, um, you know, the the game changer in terms of their turning around their fortunes. And it's certainly something that they have tried to implement uh, with Liverpool in terms of how they identify players. It was quite interesting, you know, this time three years ago when everyone could see that Liverpool were building a team that was getting stronger and stronger, but they lacked a commanding central defender. And they were absolutely certain within the club that Virgil van Dijk of Southampton was the player they wanted. And they tried to get him in the summer and failed to get him because Southampton were, you know, quite justifiably sort of saying, look, we, you know, you, you've brought a lot of players off us. We're not selling him cheap. You can't have him. You can't put pressure on him. You can't make a sell. And even though the, the player was sort of desperate to, to, to leave, to join uh, Liverpool. And rather than then turning to a, a, a backup or, a, you know, a, a lesser alternative, they just said, OK, we'll, we'll wait. And that meant that they played half that season with, you know, let's face it, substandard central defenders. And their big problem in that half a season was their defensive record. They were still having a, a decent season, but it, their defence was letting them down. A couple of big examples, they got hammered by Tottenham at um, Wembley. That's the last time they lost to Tottenham, um, three and a half years ago. Uh, but without wanting to timestamp it, they're playing tonight, so that will probably end tonight. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, um, what that, but what I showed was, yeah. So basically, then when they get Van Dyke in, and they had to pay what at the time was a world record over seventy million for a central defender, but it had such an immediate impact on the team that that in that half, even in that half season, he joined in January, and in that half season, uh, the defence improved to the extent that Liverpool out of nowhere got to the Champions League final, um, and the following season won the Champions League and had a league season in which they got ninety-seven points and and didn't win the league. They lost out by one point to Man City, and then the next season won the league. And, you know, you can put a lot of that down to that that strategic approach to transfer um, transfer policy. But not every club does that. And you use the Chelsea example, and they, they you know, I think they used to be in a, bit, a lot more sort of profligate with their cash. And and they they have a system whereby the manager isn't necessarily... You, you see, it was quite interesting that you... You phrased it that oh Lampard had spent was it two hundred million, um, it, uh, whereas I, I think I think people sort of insiders at the club would would know that it wasn't really him spending that money at all, and I think that was quite evident by the way in which he was unable to get to fit some of their buys into his team because they were clearly not ones that he thought would help the structure and the way he was trying to play, and then when you start leaving players out. Like Guy Havertz, for example, one of German football's big young stars, a lot of competition for him. Chelsea get him, and Lampard clearly has no idea where he's going to fit into the team. And he's got players who are already kind of playing the role that Havertz wants to play. And if he then they've then got an asset that's cost them 50, 60, 70 million quid that's sitting on the bench. And when he's coming on, he's not really having much effect and his confidence dropping and therefore his value is dropping. And then Chelsea have a decision to make. They're like, right, do we allow an asset to, to devalue or do we, you know, results aren't going well at the same time. So do we then change the manager and bring in someone who's going who's gonna to manage him more effectively and get the best out of him? And 
that's why it's absolutely no surprise or coincidence whatsoever that they've brought in a German who is also going to get the best out of Timo, or hopefully for them, get the best out of Timo Werner, who's another one who's like one of the best players in the Bundesliga, brilliant in the Champions League for Leipzig, has barely scored a goal. And he's been playing almost every Chelsea game. And whether that's because, again, did the manager see him as a core part of the team or was that purchase kind of inflicted upon him? And that's one of the interesting dynamics, the way modern football clubs are run. You know, that old school uh, that old school model of a, a manager, you know, Brian Clough going at the chairman and going, oh, you know, I want, I want £40,000 to sign, um, what's his name, the... Tottenham, uh, Tottenham legendary got Dave. Um, oh, it comes to me in a sec. Uh, and you know, just that battle between the chairman and the manager, and the manager kind of plucks a name out. The um, Dave McKay uh, chairman pull, plucks that name out of the blue, goes in, gets the cash out of the chairman, and and that's that. Whereas now, in, before a player is bought in most clubs, it's, there'll be like a panel of people who've identified. There'll be a scouting network from all over the world, and they're they're, they're having, you know, meetings about, right, how is this player going to fit in? Is it right or wrong? And, uh, you know, Chelsea are an interesting example because, they, you know, they've already got a goalkeeper who is the most expensive goalkeeper in the world, Kefir Arizabalaga, and um, he's on the bench because he's another one who's gone there and not necessarily gone there with the backing of the managers who are going to have to put him in the team because they're thinking, oh, they're probably thinking, well, you've overspent. It's not my problem. You spent 80 million quid on this keeper. He's, he's, fra- he's fragile and he's not he's not commanding enough on crosses. He's not a particularly brilliant um, shot stopper. He's letting in a higher percentage of the shots on target than any other keeper in the, in the league. I can't justify having him in the team anymore. So you bring in uh, a 38-year-old, uh, Argentinian reserve goalkeeper who Man City let go and then this season you end up having to buy another elite goalkeeper for another huge amount of money but in the meantime you've got an £80 million asset on massive wages as as the reserve goalkeeper at Chelsea and that, that's a problem that's not going to go away because his transfer value and the appetite to buy him has diminished hugely so what happens? You know the club the club uh, miss out um, so those trends yeah that, but it's interesting um you're, you're right to say none of those things constitute a, a moment, but that that yeah. is, you know, interestingly, Sam Allardyce, who is, uh, you know, quite <clears throat> by most people. I, I'm, by the way, hands up. I'm not a big fan of um, Sam Allardyce's management style, his personality, or the way his teams play. Um, probably because they tend to they have a horrible habit of frustrating Liverpool. Um, but um, but I will say one thing about him is. That, um, he has been at the forefront of using um, data and analysis and having a big sort of technical and medical team going back to the early 2000s when he was um, boss of Bolton Wanderers. And he used to get a lot of, uh, you know, stick and people taking the piss out of him for he'll spend a half sitting in the stand with a with a headset on communicating with his bench because he, you know, clearly you get a much better perspective of the pitch if you sit higher up in the stand and standing on the touchline. And he's always kind of been at the forefront of that. And that's probably one of the reasons why he tends to have such a strong impact, particularly when he first goes into clubs, because he, you know, he look he looks at the whole, the whole picture and everything in great uh, detail. Um, mm. Even though, even though I don't like him. <laughs> <laughs> Was there anything that, you know, for you, you know, stands out like this would probably have to be the last one. Yeah. But- oh, well, all right. Well, I'll, tr- I'll try and be, concise with it but it is in my opinion the most influential moment in modern 
shaping modern football um, uh, the single biggest thing. And, uh, and, it, and it didn't even happen on the football pitch. It was a 1995 court case um, involving a, uh, a Belgian lower league uh, footballer called Jean-Marc Bosman. Probably everyone knows about it. And, you know, it, the, the, the simple principle of freedom of movement, which I think had been guaranteed by the uh, Treaty, of Lu- Treaty of Rome or the Treaty of Luxembourg, one of the founding sort of EU treaties about free, you know, having freedom of contract once your contract with an employer has expired. But for some reason, football had never kind of bought into that or gone along with it. And he was, I think it was from FC Liège, who were like kind of second club in Liège to standard Liège, who were the bigger club. I think he wanted to go from them to Dunkirk, who were in the French second division. And um, even though his contract was up, his um, his current employer, Liège, or, or, pre- or previous employer in terms of the, the contract, but they still kind of had rights over him, um, put an unrealistic transfer uh, fee on his head that they knew Dunkirk weren't going to um, uh, be able to meet of about half a million uh, quid, which bear in mind is lower league football, so he wasn't going to, they were never going to be able to pay that. And they uh, slashed his wages to, I think, around £500 a, w- uh, a month. Yeah, a month. So uh, I, I'm pretty sure from memory, it was about 75% drop in his wages. And they, at the time, had the right, he couldn't stop them from doing that. And he, went to the sort of European Court of uh, Human Rights and argued that, you know, football should be no different from any other industry whereby if you're no longer under contract, you should have the freedom to go wherever you choose to go, providing you reach an agreement with that new employer. And the success in 1995 of that case has changed football beyond all recognition because it's put all of the power in the hands of the players and it has completely changed the dynamic between players and clubs. And you look at the modern day footballer now, you look at the way that they demand that they're managed, the way that the, the old school kind of tough love management te- techniques have largely gone out of the game. You know, the old sort of Mike, Bass, Mike Bassett style of going in a change room, slamming the door, throwing teacups and football boots around the room. It's interesting when you see the managers that have straddled those two generations and some really unsuccessfully completely unable to adapt others like Alex Ferguson able to very smartly sort of uh, tiptoe along that line and to find the the, the right balance and getting it wrong sometimes like lobbing a kicking a football boot in David Beckham's face and making him have stitches but that definitely it for me that Bosman ruling is you could trace so much back to that, including that that issue of uh, sort of management style, because players now, you know, there are there are there's a situation at the moment where four or five elite players in European football are in the last six months of their contract. That means that it gives them the freedom to once you get past January in that season, they can negotiate um, pre-contract agreements with new employers and run down their contract to their current employer. And it's up to their current employer whether they want to continue to play that player or not. Um, but it means that then the club don't get the transfer fee and the player can go to his new employer and say, well, you've saved on a transfer fee. So I want a massive signing on fee to reflect the amount that you've saved in not having to buy me. And I want that saving you've made to be reflected in my salary. Um, so it puts unimaginable power on the on on the side of players, and that's again a contributing factor as to why you've got really these days the cult of the individual, which is quite unusual in a team sport. There's always been there's always been a focus on key players going back to you know 
Pele and Beckenbauer and Cruyff and Pushkas and Best and Dalglish and and you know Maradona and every every has always been elite star players, Bobby Charlton. But um, I think now players are so kind of powerful and and have such kind of ownership over their own their own brand, their own identity, and their own image that there are you know lots of people, particularly the, from the sort of you know gaming side of things, who don't necessarily have the loyalty towards clubs they follow players and that you know there's a, there's a real increasing trend apparently i mean i don't know i'm a 39 year old man i would barely know how to turn on a games console let alone play someone uh in um you know la paz um but <laughs> apparently apparently you know there are people who will just be so into a player that they will just follow that player whatever club they play for particularly people like messi and ronaldo who are who bring out an obsess an obsession in in their sort of followers and fans, um, and I really think you can trace so much of that down to the uh, that Bosman ruling in 1995, which at the time was sort of quite innocuous. I I think the first uh, <laughs> from an English perspective, and it, you you won't like this uh, Matt as a Tottenham fan, but probably the the biggest example of it in those early years in the early 2000s was when Sol Campbell ran down his contract and joined Arsenal. Because I mean, can you? Let me just thinking about that now. That's a man who'd come through the Tottenham youth system, who had become club captain of Tottenham, idolised by the fans. The team was kind of built around him at a time when Tottenham weren't great. He was the the hope, you know, that he was the, the the you know everyone was sort of clinging to him as oh, at least we've got Sol Campbell, and he was you know claim a self confessed Tottenham fan from the area. To to run down your contract because you want to move is one thing, but to then Take advantage of that freedom, deny your club that you supposedly love that transfer fee, and to go to their biggest rivals. It's, <laughs> even now, that would be quite shocking, I think. So, uh, next week, or next time, sorry, not next week. Yeah, next time. Ne- next time, whenever um, that may be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I've, I've sort of ran through a couple of the suggestions already, but I'll, I've got a few a few left um, that I can read back to you. These are your suggestions, that is. Uh, international competition versus elite European club football. Yeah, let's do that. That's in, I like that. Okay. That's an interesting one. Right. <laughs> okay, good stuff. All right. I'll, uh, uh, yeah, so, so till next time. Yeah, and on that on that bombshell, it's time to say aha and goodbye <laughs> wherever you are.